Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your ways are the best ways. Teach us to understand them, to live by them, and to bear witness to them in Jesus' name. Amen. Do take a seat. This is the last in our series on the good life, and my subject is marriage. I am not going to talk about singleness. Ben Doolan uh, did that for us last week from the Bible's teaching on 1 Corinthians 7. Do give that a listen if you weren't here then. Nor am I going to talk about divorce and remarriage. I did do that in a sermon on Mark chapter 10 on the 7th of November last autumn. Uh, And that is available on our website too if you want to follow that up. Instead, I have three questions. What does our culture say about marriage? What does Jesus teach about marriage? And how should we then live within marriage? First of all, what does our culture say about marriage? Confused and contradictory things is the truth of it. Our culture flaunts sex in our faces. That creates all kinds of pressures. Men face the temptations of pornography. Women get a constant hammering about how they look. From the media, we get a barrage of messages, all kinds of things. Faithful marriage is boring. Virginity is a vice. Adultery is exciting and adds spice to a tedious life. Our behavior is controlled by our feelings. Cutting and running is the way to sort out a stressful relationship. Sex is just a recreational activity. Not needing other people is a sign of maturity. You must put yourself and your own needs first, even at the expense of your marriage and your children. Marriage can be between any combination of genders. Having children is not a key purpose of marriage. Marriage is not permanent, so you can now divorce your spouse in six months, giving no reason, and with your spouse having no opportunity to contest the divorce. And yet, so much drama in film, TV, and fiction is built around the failure of the characters to follow God's design, though that is unspoken, and the consequent immorality and unfaithfulness and adultery and devastation and conflict and suffering that follow in their wake. Lavish weddings are celebrated and exclusive photos of the happy couple fill expensive and glossy magazines. Almost all teenagers aspire to marriage. 87% of high earners marry. Only 24% of low earners marry. So the rich get married and stay together on average. The poor don't. 
or to put that somewhat more sharply, on average, the rich publicly trash marriage but privately enjoy its benefits. The poor suffer the consequences. Here are some of the Marriage Foundation's top facts on marriage. I quote, Cohabiting parents make up 19% of all couples with dependent children, but account for half of all family breakdown. Nearly all parents who stay together until their children reach 15 are married. Children suffer greatly from family breakdown. Children are now more likely to have a smartphone than a father at home. Relationships are salvageable. That's not, as a matter of fact, from a Christian organization, and you can see more of their research at marriagefoundation.org.uk. All of us, single or married, have a stake in what happens to marriage in this country. For good or ill, the state of marriage permeates the whole of society, either as a poison or as a healing medicine. And at the moment, sometimes it seems like a lethal poison is pumping around. The blood system of our nation and the signs of sickness are everywhere. The deterioration in marriage is frightening. The accumulated pain of it all does not bear thinking about. How can we turn back this tide of anguish? Surely only by listening again to the wisdom of Jesus, the one who made marriage for our good in the first place. So secondly, what does Jesus teach about marriage? Well, in his hostile debate with the Pharisees in Mark chapter 10, the Pharisees completely overlooked God's fundamental teaching about marriage. So Jesus takes them to the foundational early chapters of Genesis, and he says, quoting from Genesis chapter 1, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. That reality underlies the nature of marriage. And in the light of that, Jesus quotes Genesis 2, and adds his own comment. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. This is the essence of marriage. A man and a woman leave their parents. They commit themselves in a very profound way to one another hold fast to one another, cleave to one another, to use the old word, and they become a new union, one flesh, two become one. Sex is the physical expression of that, the physical union of the husband and the wife, from which children are born into the world. And that is a basic purpose of marriage. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 says, And God blessed them, And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Children are a blessing from God. That is not at all to say that parenting is easy or comfortable. But even as we can, 
We should obey what is unmistakably a command from God to mankind collectively to be fruitful and multiply. So this is the basic building block of a society according to God's plan. These are the maker's instructions. Marriage is between one man and one woman for life only parted by death. God knows best. God knows what is for our good. That is the foundational teaching of the Old Testament, which is itself God's word written, directly repeated and endorsed by Jesus himself. And then Jesus makes that further comment. So in verse 9 of Mark 10, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The one flesh union of husband and wife that takes place in marriage is an act of God that changes the relation of the man and the woman. It is not the doing of men and women. It is something that God does. And it is permanent, broken only by death. So men and women, and indeed the wider society, should not act to undo what God has done. That is to act against the living God. Because marriage reflects in a very deep way the permanent indissoluble covenant relationship between God and his people, the church. Other parts of the Bible spell that out, including Ephesians 5, which we heard and which we're coming to. Such is the teaching of Jesus on marriage. And in our culture, we need to bear witness to marriage as designed by God, countercultural though that is. One resource to help us with that is the Coalition for Marriage, which describes itself as Britain's leading campaign group supporting traditional marriage, which is between a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others and for life. And you can get on their emailing list by finding them at C4M, Coalition for Marriage, c4m.org.uk. That's the number four, c4m.org.uk. Thirdly, then, how should we live, in the view of all that, how should we live within marriage? And that brings us to the teaching of the Apostle Paul on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. The context here is Paul's teaching on the spirit-filled life centered on Jesus. A spirit-filled life is a Christ-centered life. Because of what we know of Jesus, and because we submit to him, we submit also to one another. And then in chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, uh, Paul gives a, if you like, a kind of worked example of spirit-filled living brought down to earth in relation to marriage, wives, and husbands. And it's on page 978 in the Bibles. And very challenging. And very uncomfortable, this teaching is. Sometimes listening to God is rather like reluctantly diving into an extremely cold swimming pool. Uh, we don't like the thought of it. But once we've done it, we discover it is very bracing and refreshing. So let's dive into this deep water. Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, 
and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This really is an amazing passage. Sometimes it gets read in wedding services and there is an unmistakable reaction because perhaps it's only half heard, generally less than half understood. And you can see some strong female hackles rising and maybe even some smug smiles on the faces of some of the men which they try not to let their wives see. But both have missed the point. Marriage is an illustration of a relationship in which every Christian is involved, the relationship of covenant love between Christ and the church. A wife should not seek to dominate her husband. She should not seek to force her own will where there is a disagreement. To use the biblical language, her attitude to him should be submissive. Now, not least in our culture, a number of things need to be said. First, accepting the headship of the husband in marriage is unavoidable if you accept the Bible as the word of God. Its teaching is unmistakable. Secondly, this headship is grounded in creation and is therefore permanently valid. It's not something that just derives from the culture of the Apostle Paul's day. Thirdly, different does not mean inferior. Men and women are equal in the sight of God. Fourthly, being equal doesn't mean having the same roles in God's order for society. The roles of husband and wife, of father and mother, are complementary, not identical. No doubt sometimes men do regard women as inferior and denigrate the role of wife and mother. It is conceivable that sometimes wives regard husbands as inferior. One woman said, whatever women do, they must do twice as well as men to be thought half as good. Luckily, this is not difficult. Mutual denigration is a sinful pattern of thought. It needs to be rooted out but you do not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Fifthly, submission is voluntary, not forced. And one last point here, the command is, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. It is not, wives, change every nappy. Headship does not imply that the division of labour should be wife 75%, husband 25%. Now the question has to be asked, isn't this whole pattern, biblical pattern of marriage ultimately anti-women? No. It is impermanence in relationships and abdication of responsibility on the part of men that is the real insult to women. But haven't men oppressed and abused women in appalling ways down the ages? They often have. And that is because Ephesians 5 has been ignored, not because it's been followed. Remember, we've only had half the picture so far, so on to verse 25. Husbands, 
Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So just as there is no escaping the principle of headship, so there is no escaping the fact that it's the self-sacrifice of Jesus for us that is the pattern for what headship means. Look at the unfolding stages of Christ's commitment to the church, which are there in verses 25 to 27. He loved us. He gave himself. He cleansed us. He makes us holy. He will present us in splendor. He doesn't look at us critically to see how we're doing, how we're presenting ourselves. He works through love to present us holy and blameless. His headship is one of responsibility and care, and that is the pattern for the husband. Second analogy that Paul uses, which is there in verses 28 to 33, is that of the husband's care for his own body. It's rather more basic and down-to-earth, but he seems to be saying that if you can't at first get your mind round the idea of being ready to be crucified for the sake of your wife, then you can at least understand the care that you lavish on your own body. Well, he says, give that same care to your wife. And that is, after all, appropriate because, as he points out, husband and wife are one flesh through marriage. So, finally, a word to you men. And you women can listen in. If you're not married, then there's no need to get married. Being single is good, as we were reminded last week. But if you want to get married, that's good too. And if you know an unmarried woman who you'd like to marry, then ask her. Don't delay unnecessarily. There is a risk she'll say no, And knowing yourself as you do, could you blame her? (laughs) But as God said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. She can't say yes unless you ask. Or at least ask her if she'd like to start talking about the possibility of the two of you getting married. But don't just think or talk about it. Make your mind up and act. The world badly needs the witness of more good Christian marriages and families. If we are married, then let's work hard at being better husbands. In our marriages, we need and we want to know our wife and to be known by her. To know her We have to listen to her and to what she wants to tell us about her thoughts and her feelings. To be known by her, we have to talk to her about our thoughts and feelings. One woman said, women speak because they wish to speak. Whereas a man speaks only when driven to speech by something outside himself. Like, for instance... He can't find any clean socks. May that not be true of us. We have to listen. We have to talk. And all of that takes intentional 
effort and it takes time. So we need to find ways to build that time into our days and our weeks. The more we listen and the more we talk, the more we will know and be known. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the gift of marriage that speaks so powerfully of your love in Christ for us, the Church. Father, we're sorry for our sins. We're sorry for our failures. Have mercy on us. And thank you that you have made that mercy and that forgiveness so freely available to us through Jesus who laid down his life for us. Father, help each one of us to live in the power of your spirit, in purity, faithfulness, submission to you, self-sacrificial service. And help us, Lord, to bear witness to the blessing of marriage in our harassed and helpless, confused, chaotic, conflicted and hurting culture. In the name of Jesus. Amen.